look at some things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man has been confused as he looks to his past and as he looks to the future. As man looks to the past, he is confused over how life began. And he's confused about the beginning. But as man looks to the future, he is confused over how life ends. And both of those affect the present. How we view the beginning of life, how we view the end of life affects the present. But man is confused in both directions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there was a problem at Corinth. And the problem was that there were some at Corinth within the church that believed and they taught error concerning the end of time. Let's notice at verse 12. Verse 12 says, If Christ is preached that he is raised from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is devoted to that question that is implied at verse 12. If we start at verse 1, if we've never studied 1 Corinthians, and we're starting at verse 1, and we read down through verse 11, we're not understanding yet that there is a problem over this issue, but then suddenly at verse 12, he says, there's some among you that say there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, let's talk about that era, found at verse 12. And one of the questions would be, what was this era that was being taught? They say there's no resurrection from the dead. Whoever this was and whatever they taught, they believed in the resurrection of Christ. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. You say, how do you know? I know that because in verses 1 through 12, or 1 through 11 at least, he argues from the resurrection of Christ to prove the general resurrection in the end of time chapter assumes that they believe that. I say assume, that is, we have to assume that they thought that because the writer is writing as if they do believe that. But they denied a general resurrection in the end of time. You say that's inconsistent. That's the point. We'll get to that in a moment. But they believe Jesus was raised from the dead, but they did not believe in a general resurrection in the end of time. So when you die, you're not going to be raised. That was the concept. Where did that originate? Where did he get this idea? Well, some might think it came from the Sadducees because the Sadducees said there is no resurrection. You remember that in studying the Gospels. But it probably wasn't the Sadducees because the Sadducees denied the resurrection of Christ. They not only denied the resurrection in the end of time, but they denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so if they got this from the Sadducees, they only took part of what the Sadducees said. So I suppose they could have been neo-Sadducees, like a neo-Calvinist. But again, they're inconsistent. It probably was from pagan Greeks who viewed the body as evil. That was a Gnostic thought. Full-fledged Gnosticism didn't come into full growth into about the second century, but there were incipient forms of that all through the New Testament times. And very well could have come from the pagan Greeks. And thus they would have thought the resurrection is impossible. If the body is evil, all matter is evil, and the body is evil, then certainly there's not going to be a resurrection evil body because that would be impossible. Implied a little later beginning at verse 35. But not only would it be impossible if you believe that, it would be undesirable. Who would want a resurrection of this evil body? If, bo if all matter is evil, you certainly don't want to bring back to life something that's 
bad and something that's evil. So those who believed in the doctrine not only thought it was impossible, it's not something they wanted to believe in. That's undesirable. Who would want to accept that? Seems to be the case, and I cite Linsky as more evidence of that. But in the end, the origin matters very little because the error needed to be refuted no matter where it came from. So did it come from the Sadducees? Maybe so. Did it come from the pagan Greeks? Maybe so. Did it come from those who were following that developed finally into Gnosticism? Maybe so. But it really doesn't matter. In the end, it was error that needed to be addressed, and Paul does that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So he addresses the confusion over the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this is a brief outline of 1 Corinthians 15. Our purpose tonight is not to do a verse-by-verse study, nor to cover the entire chapter. We're not going to do that. We're going to do something else here in just a moment, you'll see. But what I want us to do quickly is just kind of get a quick overview of what the chapter is saying so that when we work back through the chapter in parts, you know what the chapter is saying and what it's about. So Paul's addressing this confusion of the resurrection. You might call 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection from the dead or the answer to confusion of the resurrection, whatever you want to call it, but it deals with addressing the confusion of the resurrection. So here's what he does in 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 1 through 11, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as an established fact. And you said, well, I didn't think they denied that. They didn't. But he goes back and drives home the evidence for that. That Jesus was raised from the dead. You believe that you stood up on that. That's the foundation of it all. So having established that beginning at verse 12 through verse 34, he shows that because that is true, Christ is the first, first fruits of those who sleep. And so therefore all men shall be raised. Now there's a great deal of discussion in, in 12 to 34. But beginning at verse 35, he addresses the question of the nature of the resurrection. There seemed to be a misunderstanding of that. That if there's going to be a resurrection, they're thinking of something different than what the Bible taught about the resurrection. So he explains the nature of the resurrection in verses 35 to 53. We'll come back to that. Then he talks about victory over death comes to Christ. That death is swallowed up in victory, he said. And so the point here is that victory over death comes through Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 58, the end of the chapter, we must live in view of the resurrection. There is some meaning to us. So as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's some things we're going to learn in our study tonight. We're going to learn about how error spread. This was an error and it was spreading and there was a danger thereof. We're going to learn something about the danger of error. We're going to learn something though, more than just about error, we're going to learn about the nature of the resurrection. And so you may not be interested, you say, I don't really understand or care about how error spreads or how you refute error, I'm not going to be dealing with error. But I do have some interest in the resurrection. And we're going to learn about the nature of the resurrection. We're going to learn something about the hope that we have and the nature of the hope and why we have that hope. And we're going to also see how all of this affects how we live in our present day. That is, what is said about the end of time affects how we live in the present. So let's talk about confusion over the resurrection based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what we're going to do is just pick out some points through the chapter, not do a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start about with this. Let's talk about what the problem was at Corinth on this issue. There were many problems, but over this issue, what was the problem there? Well, the problem was that some, not all, but some of them had moved from the foundation. Some of them had moved from the foundation. Now, here's what the doctrine said. Let's establish that from the context. The doctrine said there is no resurrection from the dead. 
That is, no general resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 12. I'll say some among you, there is no resurrection from the dead. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Look at verse 16. For if the, Christ, uh, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. So several times in the context, he argues from the vantage point, if you are saying and if you believe, there is no resurrection. So the doctrine stated, no resurrection in the end of time from the dead. To accept that, to believe that, to embrace that, they had to move from the foundation. The foundation was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. Beginning at verse 1, he says, The gospel was preached to you. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. When I came to Corinth, I preached the gospel to you. Not only did I preach it to you, which you also received. You embraced it. You accepted it. You believed it, in other words. And in which you stand. So here was the gospel message. When I came to Corinth, and when the gospel was preached at Corinth, you accepted it, you received it, you believed it, you saw the evidence of it, and you stood upon that principle. You accept and embrace the foundation, and you stood on the foundation. Now there's a problem that happened now. Look at verse 2. You should have, but you didn't, at least some of them, hold fast to that foundation by which you're also saved if, big word, you hold fast that word which I preached to you. So here was something that has taken place. You moved from the foundation. The foundation was preached, you received it, and you stood upon it. You should have, at least all of you should have, but some of you did not hold fast to that foundation. You let it slip away. How? We'll see that in just a moment. Now at verse 2, we also learn that it's possible to believe in vain. Look at verse 2. Unless you have believed in vain. You're going to hold fast unless you believed in vain. What does that mean? Well, it's altogether possible that one could believe the gospel, accept the gospel, stand on the gospel, and that becomes in vain. How? Because they move from the foundation. Well, the same thing is true, for example, someone who believes there is a God. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And they move from it, their faith in the fact Jesus is the Son of God is in vain. Doesn't do him any good now. One who believes baptism to be essential. And they stand on that, but then they move from that foundation. The faith they had in that is no longer valid. It no longer is any count, no longer does them any good. Now look in verse 13. There is a connection between the foundation and the error that is being advanced. It's not that here's a foundation, but this error doesn't have any effect or a touching upon that. Look now at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You can't, you can't uh, separate those two. So if you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, that's the foundation now. That was the gospel that was preached. You embraced it and you stood upon it. There's the foundation. You can't separate that from this doctrine over here that says there is no general resurrection. There is a connection between the two. So you've moved away from the foundation. That's the problem. Somehow you've been influenced and you've moved away from the foundation. Now let's go now secondly and talk about the argument or the reasoning behind that. People don't just all of a sudden jump up and say, hey, you know what, I don't think I want to believe in the resurrection anymore. Why do you not want to, I don't know, I just, I just don't want to believe in it anymore. There's a reason for that. And it may not be a valid reason. It may not be consistent, but there's some reason they were moved from the foundation. There's some reasoning process that takes place. So let's consider this. The reasoning was this 
Resurrection from the dead can't be. It's impossible for that to happen. If you're the Sadducees, you believe that. That's where the influence came from, which I think not. Or if it was the pagans, the Gnostic thought, they thought it was impossible and undesirable as well. Well, they were influenced by others to hold to this doctrine. You say, how do you know? How do you know that? How do you know someone else influenced them? Well, I know this. Look at verse 34 with me. I know this error did not come from the Word. Look at verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul is speaking, and he said, now go back to the the beginning at verses 1 to 4, I preached to you the gospel, and this is contrary to that foundation that I preached. It's contrary to that. So wherever this error come from, it didn't come from the Word of God. You didn't get it from studying and reading and understanding and, and embracing the Word of God. You didn't get it from that. He said, you don't have accurate knowledge, and I speak that to your shame. This error didn't come from the apostles. Because here we have an apostle refuting that error. So it didn't come from the Word of God, it didn't come from the apostles. It had to come from influence from somewhere else. Be it the pagans, be it the Jews. It came from somewhere else. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 is rebuking them saying, you should not have been so easily moved from the foundation. Here was something that was nailed down and you should have understood this foundation that Jesus It was raised from the dead. You should have embraced that. Look at verse, and they did. But you shouldn't be moved from that. Now, if Christ be raised from the dead, how say some among you? How could you? How is it that they embrace one part of this, but they reject another part of that, is his point at verse. Verse 12. Now, Galatians 1, verse 6, we'll just make a passing reference to that. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, I marvel that you're so soon removed. Uh, from uh, him who called you into the grace into another gospel, which is not another gospel. I- I'm amazed that you're easily moved. And that's his point at verse 12. You shouldn't have been so easily moved. They should have held to what they knew to be true. They should have understood what that principle led to, and that is that Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore there is a general resurrection in the end of time because Christ is the first fruits. So they'd been influenced by others. But what was their reasoning? Now let's go to verse 35 and get more to their argument and their reasoning. He doesn't in this context give us the specifics of their argumentation. But he does say this at verse 35. But someone will say, and this is typical of the writing of Paul. He often, and and this is more uh, characteristic of Romans than it is 1 Corinthians. Quite often he would pose as if we do in our preaching and teaching. We might say, preacher, if that be true, then what about? And so we Posing an argument that someone may make. And then you respond to that argument. That's what he's doing here at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And so they're saying, how can it be? How can there be a resurrection from the dead? It seems to be based upon human reasoning. How can it be? It seems to be impossible that there's going to be a resurrection of a body. Particularly if the body is evil. If it comes from the pagan thought. It doesn't fit our theology if it comes from the Sadducees' thought. So here is a reasoning that's based upon human reasoning. It's based upon assumption. If the concept of the body being evil, and that may be what he's talking about in verses 35 to 42, it's going to be a change in the body. 
But we'll come back to that a little bit later. But this argument is based upon assumption, particularly the argument that the body is evil, and if the body is evil, it can't be raised from the dead. There's no way you'd want to raise that. No way God would want to raise that evil thing. And so it's an argument based upon assumption. It's based upon human reasoning. I know it's based upon a misunderstanding of the basics. Go back to verse 34. We'll hit this time and again. Verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. There's something and someone among you that's lacking in knowledge. Doesn't mean they're not intelligent. Doesn't mean they're not smart, but they're lacking in the knowledge of God. They're lacking in the knowledge of the revelation of God. So what are some of the basics that they misunderstand? They misunderstand the basics of the difference between the earthly and the heavenly, the physical and the spiritual. We're coming back to this a little bit later, but let's just get ahead of ourselves, beginning at verse 35. Verse 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Well, let's drop down now to verse 40. He said there are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies. Let's jump down a little bit further. Look at verse 42, the body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. It's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. What he's saying is you're not understanding the basics between the spiritual and the physical. You're not understanding the difference in heavenly and earthly. You're misunderstanding some basics. Let's go further. There was something else they misunderstood, that the resurrected body will be changed. Look at verse 51. That was one of the things they didn't understand. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So this body, when it's raised, is not going to be the same body. It's not going to stay in the same form. The body is going to be changed. So if there is an assumption the body is evil because it's matter, it's going to be changed to a spiritual body. It's not going to be the same body. So what's his point? His point is, your reasoning is based upon human reasoning. It's based upon assumption. It's based upon a misunderstanding of some fundamental and basic facts that you don't understand. And so that drives your concept. Now look at verse 12 to 19, and then we'll jump to verse 29. Their argument and their reasoning is that they accepted what they wanted, but they reject what they can't explain. That is often true with people today. You embrace what you want to embrace, but if I can't explain it, then you reject that. We do that with creation. We do that with the end of time. We do that with uh, the new birth. John 3 is an example of that. And so you embrace what you want and reject what you can't explain. How so? Well, beginning at verse 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 again. That if Christ is raised from the dead, they believe that. How say some among you, there's no resurrection from the dead? They don't know how to explain that. Let's drop down to verse, uh, verse 29. Uh, not verse 29. I want to jump down on verse 35. Beginning at verse 35, and I'm just going to look at a block of verses and not one particular verse. But this block of verses, 39 to about verse 42. All this argument about the change in the body and the difference in a physical and a spiritual body was something they couldn't explain. How could this body be raised and then go to heaven if this body is this physical body? I don't, I don't get it. I don't, understand. I don't know how to explain that. So they seem to embrace what they wanted but reject what they can't explain. And therein is part of the problem. That was part of their reasoning. Now let's move to a third thing. What's the danger of this doctrine? Maybe this is something that's just kind of an innocent thing. Let's just embrace this, that there is no resurrection, and so some among us can believe in the no resurrection, and others believe in the resurrection. Is that, is that okay? Is this a unity and diversity kind of thing? Let's all be united, even though we have diverse views about the end of time. Can we do that? 
Is there a danger involved? Well, let's go to verse 12 again. The problem now is that this doctrine is corrupting and the problem grows. It's corrupting. Look at verse 12. There is an influence of error among you, he says. And if Christ be preached that he's been raised from the dead, how say some among you? What's the point? It wasn't that there was some down over in Macedonia that are saying that indeed there is no resurrection and they could influence you. But there's not anybody in the church there, anybody real close by in Achaia. But he said there's some among you, there's some in the church there at Corinth. Some in the church at Corinth, they've already been influenced by this. There's some among you saying there is no resurrection. They're Christians. They've been baptized, according to verse 29. They believe in the resurrection of Christ. They believe in the forgiveness of sins, verses 12 to 19. But they don't believe in the resurrection in the end of time. So the influence of error is already among you, he said at verse 12. Now verse 33, please understand this verse in its context. Because most of the time you hear this verse quoted, it is usually out of its context. I don't mean misapplied, but I mean out of its context. Look at verse 33. Be not deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. What am I learning from that? I'm learning that associating with the advocates of this era has a corrupting influence. Associating with the advocates of this era has a corrupting influence. Most of the time when you hear this verse quoted, it is quoted in the, in the context, watch who your friends are. We use that that way this morning. Proper application. Watch who you run with. Watch for the crowd you run with. Watch about those friends at school and, and those, those, the people in the neighborhood that may be a corrupting influence. Don't spend a lot of time with them because evil communication corrupts good morals. Let's put it back in its context. It's in the context of teachers of error. There was error being taught over the resurrection. And his point in verse 33 is, don't be deceived into thinking that you can associate with that error, with the teachers of that error, and them not corrupt you. So here's the danger of that. The danger of that is association with the advocates of this error is a corrupting influence. It corrupts your good morals. Notice something else. Tie that now with verse 34. We just saw verse 33. A lack of knowledge, though the claim may be of superiority. We'll explain that in a moment made them right for influence. What do you mean the claim of superiority? Let's get that first. If this did not come from the Jews, but from the pagans, from the Greeks, if it was an incipient form of Gnosticism, the Gnostics claimed superior knowledge. That's why they were called Gnostics. They claimed to have a superior knowledge. And so they would view those who claimed to be Christians as being inferior in their knowledge, but they had superior knowledge. They had an insight others didn't have. And so my point is, their lack of knowledge, verse 34, we'll come back to that, though they claimed superior knowledge, they really had a lack of knowledge, made them ripe for the influence. Tie verse 33 to 34. Be not deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Association with those advocates of error will corrupt your good morals. So what do you do about it? Verse 34, awake to righteousness and don't sin. Don't let them lead you to sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. What's his point? His point is that lack of knowledge, verse 34, makes them right for influence, verse 33. There's the danger. Now, here's something else beginning at verse 12. 
they are susceptible to leave the other principles that they embrace. Say, so how do you know? They're rejecting the resurrection in the end of time. But they still hold to a number of things. And if you question them, are you saying that Jesus is not right? Oh, no, no, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in forgiveness of sins through Christ? Oh, yeah, we believe in that. Do you believe baptism for the remission of sins? Oh, yeah, I believe in that. Do you believe a judgment day? Oh, yeah, I believe in that too. Here's the point. Rejecting one part of the revelation of God makes them susceptible to leave other principles. They've moved already, they can move again. Verses 1 to 4 says, they've moved from the foundation. If they've made one move, they can easily make another move. They may not, but they could easily make another move. So here are the other principles that are tied to the resurrection. You say, how do you know they're tied? Paul ties them right here in the context. For example, the resurrection in the end of time is tied to the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 12. If Christ was raised, how say some among you that he's not raised from the dead? Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ, verse 17, is not risen, your faith is futile. For if Christ is not raised, verse 16, then, then uh, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. He ties the resurrection of Christ with the general resurrection. So if one rejects the general resurrection, still tries to hold to the resurrection of Christ, they're susceptible to finally giving that up. If they just be consistent. There's something else. They're susceptible to giving up on the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse... Um, Look at verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Because if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then there is no forgiveness of sins. They're embracing we have forgiveness of sins through Christ. But they could easily give that up because they're moving. They could easily give up the hope for the future. That's found in verses 12 to 16. And the practice of baptism. Let's go to verse 29 now. This is a controversial verse, but otherwise, speaking in this context of there is no resurrection in the end of time, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Well, the Mormons think that's talking about being baptized on behalf of someone who died. You're baptized for them. Obviously, that doesn't work. This is being baptized in view of death, I think. If you want to research all the possible views of um, what verse 29 is about, I think you could count at least 40, if not more, different views on verse 29. But it's in the context of being, of being baptized has something to do with the resurrection. And when you were baptized, you were baptized in view of the dead, that is, of dying. If there is no resurrection, then why were you baptized? Why were you baptized? I mean, I'm asking you that question. Just think about that for a moment. If you don't believe in a resurrection at the end of time, why were you baptized? You said, well, I was baptized. No, you were baptized because you knew there would be a resurrection in the time, and you knew there was going to be this resurrection, and if there is no resurrection, there would be no need to be baptized. That's his point. So here, back to the point. They are susceptible to leave those principles. If they would be consistent and say, you know, there is no resurrection in, in the end of time, they're going to quit the practice of baptism. They're susceptible to giving up other principles. Let's talk about Paul's response. Now, how did he respond? I know the problem, I know the argument, I know the danger of this error. How did he respond to that? Let's talk about how error is refuted. How did he address the error here? Well, it started with evidence of the foundation, which they claim to embrace. That's interesting to me. Why did he do that? 
Because he understood that if they moved away from, from the foundation of what the foundation implies, they may could easily give up on the foundation itself. So he reinforces the foundation upon which everything is built. This foundation is the resurrection of Christ. How does he, he establish the foundation? He said an apostle had received this message, verse 3. In other words, inspiration. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. He's an apostle. He's an inspired man. And so he's saying, I'm delivering to you a message. I didn't make this up, but I received it. I received it by inspiration. Furthermore, verses 5 through 11, there were witnesses of the resurrection. Let me give you evidence of that, he says. That he was seen, he rose the third day according to the scriptures. So he said, I received of inspiration. Another evidence is the scriptures had foretold, that prophecy had foretold of this. And a third evidence that he cites are the witnesses. Well, we won't go through every witness, but notice what he says beginning at verse 5. He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve and then over 500 brethren at one time. And last of all, he was seen by me also, verse, verse 8. So there's an abundance of witnesses, he said. I'll witness the testimony that can say that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. So he starts with evidence of the foundation. Secondly, he moves and talks about the consequence of the error. Pay close attention to this. Anytime you deal with error, any effective disputant of error, Paul was one, always shows the consequence of the error. If you believe this, then this is the consequence thereof. That's how Paul addressed error in Romans. That's how he addressed it in Galatians. That's how he addressed it in 1 Corinthians. That's how he addressed it. Is he shows the consequence. What did he say? Well, here's what he said. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. Verse 13. Well, they said, no, 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 we believe that. That's a consequence you've got to be willing to accept. Secondly, if Christ is not raised, then your preaching is vain. Verse 14. All this preaching about Jesus Christ is empty. It's useless. Need to quit preaching then. We're not ready to buy that. If your preaching is vain, verse 14, your faith is vain also. And those that teach the resurrection of Christ are liars, verse 15. We're found false witnesses. So all of us apostles going forth preaching, Jesus was raised from the dead, we're a bunch of liars, is what he's saying. That's a consequence if this doctrine be true. And furthermore, if Christ is not raised, there's no forgiveness of sins. They say, well, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. But if you don't believe in a resurrection, you can't believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you can't believe in forgiveness of sins. That's his point at verse 17. And if there's no resurrection, we have no hope. For those who have fallen asleep have perished, and if this life, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most pitiable or most miserable. So here are some of the consequences that go with that. Well, that's not true. He goes on to talk about if there's no resurrection, there's no need to be baptized then. Verse 29. Well, let's go further. Something else he does in refuting this error is show the consequence and the inconsistency. Not only the consequence or consistency, but he also shows the inconsistency of their error. How so? Well, notice what he says in verses 12. He goes from two directions in this context. In 12 to 19, we've already covered. He's saying if you reject the general resurrection, you must also reject the resurrection of Christ. So he goes from one to the other. He's showing you're inconsistent. You embrace part, but you reject something else that you ought to be rejecting if you reject one. If you accept one, you ought to accept the other. But he again further goes to show if you accept the resurrection of Christ, you must accept the general resurrection. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead, a well-established fact, 1 through 11, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
So notice his argument on consistency. That your line of argument, you need to be consistent. If you reject the general resurrection, you've got to reject the resurrection of Christ. If you accept the resurrection of Christ, you've got to accept the general resurrection. They go hand in hand together. He holds their feet to the fire on that. That's how you deal with error. But he's not through. He shows the basic misunderstanding and the assumptions they have. You see, error is always built upon assumptions and misunderstanding. That was the case here. It was the case in other places through the New Testament. He shows the difference in the physical and the spiritual body. Now, we're not going to go through the details of this, but beginning at verse 35 to 49, he establishes the difference between that which is corruptible and that which is incorruptible, that which is spiritual and that which is, is physical, that which is heavenly and that which is earthly. There was that basic misunderstanding. He said, you don't have an understanding of the de- basic difference between the physical and the spiritual. Not only that, beginning at verse 50 to 53, he shows that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. One of the concepts may, may have been that flesh and blood we know can't go to heaven, so I know we're not going to be raised, the body's not going to be raised. So his argument at verse 51 is that we're going to be changed. When the body is raised, there's going to be a change takes place. And consequently, the change that takes place will show that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's how he addresses the error. But I want to go back just for a moment and notice those four things that he does. How did he address this error? He started with evidence of the foundation and argues from that foundation. He shows the consequence of the error. He showed their inconsistency. And furthermore, he shows the basic misunderstanding and all the assumptions. And that's how he dealt with that error. But now let's go finally to the meaning to us. Having established there is the resurrection from the dead, he says that proves then there is a general resurrection at the end of time. So what does that mean to us? So refuting this error is not just a refutation of error. He's establishing a principle that's meaningful to every one of us. And so what does the resurrection at the end of time mean to us? Well, let's list several things, beginning at verse 18. It means we have the hope for the faithful who have died. Your loved ones that were faithful to the Lord that have died and have gone on, if there is no resurrection at the end of time, then there's no hope for them. But verse 18 says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if there's no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, we have hope for those who have died in Christ. Secondly, we have hope for something better than this life. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're all men to be most pitiable. What does he mean by that? If this is all the hope we have, and when we die it's all over, then this isn't much. But we have hope for something better than this life. If there is a resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 26, then verse 54. Our enemy, death, will be finally destroyed. You think of death being your enemy. You're fearful of death. From a child up, you're fearful of death. And if you're not fearful of death, you're fearful that someone you love is going to die. And you recognize that death brings an end to things on earth. And so it is our enemy. Look at verse 26. If there is a resurrection from the dead, then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Look at verse 54. Verse 54, the end of verse 54 says, death is swallowed up in victory. There is victory over our enemy. Our enemy, death, is finally destroyed. Beginning at verse 30, if there is a resurrection from the dead, we have reason to endure hardships. Paul's argument is this, in verse, beginning at verse 30. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? What's his point? If there is no resurrection, then, then why do we go through everything we go through? Why do we endure all the hardships? 
Why do, we let, why, why, why do I stand and let people abuse me? Why do I let them beat me and leave me for dead and then I get up and go back in? Why do I do that? Look at verse 31. I affirm that by my boasting, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Why do I suffer all this? So you have a reason to endure hardships if there's a resurrection. And we look forward to a superior body. Look at verse 51, or verse 42, I'm sorry. Look at verse 42. A superior body in that verse 42 says it's going to be an incorruptible body. Verse 44 says it's going to be a spiritual body. Verse 51 says it'll be a changed body. Verse 52 says it'll be an immortal body. And so we have a hope of looking forward to a superior body. Does your body have problems? Does it ache? Does it, does it have difficulties? And you say, I'd like to have a better and a superior body than what I've got. You're going to have one in the resurrection. That body that you have will be raised and it'll be changed to a superior body. And we know that our steadfast labor, verse 58, is not in vain. You say, yeah, I wonder if, if I work hard and I'm diligent, I'm faithful, I press on to the end, I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord. Is it going to be worth it? And if there is a resurrection in the end of time, then we know that our steadfast labor is not in vain. And so we remain faithful. We take abuse. We suffer. There's hardships. But it's going to be worth it in the end of time because we know our labor is not in vain. Well, there was confusion over the resurrection at Corinth. And perhaps you know of people that are confused about the end of time. The end time prophecy is a uh, much discussed issue over which there's great confusion. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was a problem. What the problem was, we see their argument and their reason, the danger that it posed, how Paul responded. And then what does that all mean to us? There's something practical in that as the answer was given to that era. Confusion over the resurrection. There may be one more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand while we sing?